News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are only about six weeks away from the next World Juniors Championship, scheduled to take place in Edmonton in August. Now, usually, this is a time of celebration, great hockey. This time, though, there is a very dark cloud hanging over the tournament, and it's all because of Hockey Canada. More and more sponsors are suspending support for this upcoming event. Big brands like Scotiabank, Tim Hortons, Esso, Telus. Commercials that are common while those, ga- those games are being played won't be this year. Well, for more on this story and how extraordinary this is in the Canadian retail landscape, we are joined now by Susan Krasinski-Robertson, retailing reporter for the Globe and Mail. Susan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, in your latest piece, you were writing about this, about just this list of com- big companies that are deciding that they're not doing this. How extraordinary is that? It's pretty extraordinary. You know, the world, the um, Hockey Canada relies on corporate partners for a big chunk of its revenue, much, much bigger than the proportion that it relies on for from the government. So we saw the federal government freeze funding to the organization recently, but the threat of sponsors potentially pulling their funding is a really a much bigger one financially to the organization and should send a big message. Should it? I know it should send a big message, but do you think that message is getting through? That remains to be seen. It's a really good and a skeptical question. You know, um, the reality is that these sponsors have pulled their support for the upcoming World Junior Tournament, and they have mostly said they are reevaluating their relationship with the organization. That means that they have not committed to pulling their sponsorship or pulling their funding in any meaningful way yet. So, they are experiencing backlash. We should not understate the amount of pressure that Hockey Canada is facing here from its corporate partners, but we haven't yet seen them make the big step of walking away from the organization altogether. Walking away from that organization means walking away from the body that governs all ice hockey in Canada, and hockey is very close to Canadians' hearts. There's a reason that so many big companies uh, sign on as sponsors with this organization. And so it's it's a balancing act for many of them in the corporate world to attempt to exert this pressure, but also, yes, not, not having walked away entirely just yet. Right. I, I thought the big one that I heard about yesterday was Tim Hortons, because when I think about how closely intertwined Tim Hortons is with hockey in this country, it was extraordinary that they were taking that step. Yeah, you think about how deeply ingrained in the marketing DNA of Tim Hortons hockey is, and it is a big step. You know, I mean, obviously, the chain was founded by a famous hockey player. Um, It's also a sponsor of the NHL in Canada, has recruited, you know, stars like Wayne Gretzky, Sidney Crosby, and Nathan McKinnon to star in its commercials. And it also is deeply, deeply involved with hockey at a grassroots level. So the company partners... You know, as anyone with a kid knows, partners with more than 950 local hockey associations across Canada through its Timbits program every year. So hockey is really, really woven into the greater marketing plan of Tim Hortons, and it is a particularly notable brand to pull away at this stage. Exactly. So have these companies, I mean, are they withdrawing their support for hockey, or is it just they want to send a message to the people at the highest level of Hockey Canada? I think it's more the latter. I think a lot of them are attempting to remain, um, you know, to, to hold on to that association with hockey that they have spent, you know, millions of dollars 
building over the years. Um, They also, I believe, want to be cautious about how they step away and where they step away, because many of these organizations also support women's hockey. And probably a lot of the conversations happening in these boardrooms right now are, you know, how do we send the appropriate message without, you know, over a scandal over sexual assault of a woman without pulling, you know, support from from women's hockey, which has struggled for equal support to men's hockey for many, many years. And um, and so it's that is another yet another balancing act. Right. It just goes to show you, though, how significant Hockey Canada is, isn't it? And what have they said about all this? Well, Hockey Canada testified, um, its executives testified before the standing committee um, last week that Parliament called them forward. Um, they, they haven't said much. You know, the incident, the terrible incident that is alleged to have occurred here, um, there was an independent investigation um, over that incident. Its executives told Parliament that, um, that they, they did not know which players participated in that investigation and did not obligate players to participate in that investigation. Obviously, that's not good enough um, for the sport minister who now has has ordered a forensic audit to ensure that no federal funding, no public funds were used to pay the out-of-court settlement, used to settle the lawsuit over these allegations last month. And that committee has scheduled further hearings for the end of July. So we will be hearing more from Hockey Canada. But it hasn't said much to this to this mm-hmm. stage, you know, and it says basically it has, you know, issued some pat statements about how the matter is concerning and it's and it's listening and wants to do better. But I think its corporate partners are clearly sending a message here that they want to hear about more specific actions that the organization intends to take. You know, Susan, every time I hear that description, as you just put it there, uh, that they didn't, they don't know the names of the players, and they didn't even compel the players to participate. They encouraged them. I, I shake my head because you just, mm-hmm. I cannot believe how tone deaf that was and continues to be. And this is a systemic issue. We have to recognize that this goes far beyond the the sexual assault allegations that we are talking about in this individual case. Um, you know, Sheldon Kennedy, who is an obviously a former NHL player, has become an advocate for victims of abuse after speaking about out, about his own abuse from uh, junior hockey coach Graham James. You know, he spoke with my reporting party, Marty Quickenberg, yesterday, and he said, you know, sport organizations, they have an, an obligation to acknowledge wrongdoing, but that they also need to address the systemic violence what he called the systemic violence in our national sport. And he, he said to Marty, you know, in this case, there really has been no strong acknowledgement. It's important to note that recently, um, federal sport minister Pascal Saint-Ange uh, created a, um, an independent investigative body for this very reason, because um, there have been widespread allegations of abuse and maltreatment in sport, not just in hockey. And that's something that the Globe and Mail has reported extensively on in the past year, as have others. So this is a systemic problem in hockey. It's a systemic problem in many sports. And there are moves being taken right now to attempt to create meaningful, independent investigative processes so that athletes can be protected. Do you think, are Canadians outraged about this? I know every time I read a story, I feel my blood pressure rising, I get outraged, but I just wonder, is there enough collective anger to really force some of these changes? That's a really good question. One would hope so. (laughs) One would hope so. The reality is, um, you know, Hockey Canada continues to make money. It continues to, um, 
to be able to go before Parliament and say that, you know, it, it hasn't compelled hockey players to participate in investigations, as we've just discussed. I think more collective outrage is, is probably needed. But, you know, in a lot of cases, money talks. And that's why the corporate response from sponsors will be really important in the coming months. Um, you know, again, for now, many of them have pulled support for an event. Uh, meaningful threats to pull their sponsorship altogether should change not occur, I think would most likely be one of the things that causes these executives to sit up and take notice. And so it'll be interesting to see. And I think people should be pressing companies that they support um, to continue to monitor what kind of action they take on this matter if this is something that they care about. Oh, I think we care about it. And once you hear the details, I don't know how you can't care about it. Susan, thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. That's Susan Krasinski-Robertson, retailing reporter for the Global Mail, who's also been covering this Hockey Canada story because of how it's impacting also the corporate world. Read her latest in the Global Mail today about this. And if you haven't yet read about this scandal swirling around Hockey Canada, you absolutely should, because I do feel like there should be more outrage about this. You will read it. You will shake your head. You will also wonder why, why haven't heads rolled? More needs to change, clearly, at Hockey Canada to get something done about this. This is Mornings with Simi. We keep hearing a lot of talk about an Indigenous-led Olympic bid for the 2030 Games here in BC. But what does that actually mean? What do we know about this bid, which seems to be progressing? But let's talk about money from the different levels of government. How much is this going to cost all of us? This is one of the aspects of the story that you can read about in the Global Mail newspaper done by Francis Bula, their urban affairs contributor, who joins us now. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Simi. How much do we know about this bid at this point? Well, we don't know the big thing everyone wants to know, which is what is the estimated cost. And that's supposed to be coming out, actually, uh, I think next week or the week after, something like that. Uh, So what we know is um, who has signed a memo of understanding, who else is involved, and the list of venues that um, the uh, Canadian Olympic Committee has worked out as what's needed, uh, along with what they call the Leadership Assembly, which is the four First Nations um, and the two cities that are involved so far, Vancouver and Whistler. Okay, so it sounds like there's still a lot of questions, like who is going to be contributing what? I know you tried to get that question answered, right? Oh, I went around that one like many times. (laughs) And everyone said, not only is there not a number that people can start splitting up, but, um, you know, I felt that I uh, was (laughs) having a hard time understanding what the process is going to be because um, people were talking um, to me about wanting very much for it to be um, a collaborative process and they're going to, you know, to have dinner together and they're going to talk about things and they're going to try to do it a different way. Um, And uh, so it's different for people who are used to these kind of hard nosed type negotiations, um, often sometimes with media stories leaking out here and there about who's going to pay for what. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to watch because the Indigenous people, leaders I talk to um, who are involved in this, they want it to be done a different way. So that's going to be interesting to watch. 
Yeah, that is interesting when you think, because what does that mean, really? And does that mean that there will be like veto power? How will decisions be made? It sounds like none of that's been worked out yet. Yeah, that's right. Um, and um, it, you know, it's delicate when you're talking about however many, we don't know, uh, the last Olympics was uh, in, here with 7 billion uh, in the end. And the province put in uh, 975 and the city put in 545. A lot for venues that we now still, um, you know, benefit yeah. from like Hillcrest and Trout Lake and so on. Uh, and only about, you know, out of that 545 or whatever it was, only about 30 million went to operations. I, only 30 million, I say. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it does, you know, it feels to me like this bid is progressing, Francis, even though I don't know if the the general public is ready for this? Well, I think everyone's a bit uh, hesitant to comment because it's so different. Like, um, Canada's coming in a bit late behind some of the other cities that have been planning. Um, uh, Sort of the Barcelona area, uh, Salt Lake, and... um, somewhere in Japan, I think, um, or Korea. I can't remember, sorry. <laughs> uh, so we came in a bit late, and then it's Indigenous-led, and um, there's a lot of talk about how reconciliation efforts are going to sort of inform how the bid works. So mm. I think everyone's standing back thinking, yeah. okay, well, we'll just watch and see how this evolves. We don't really get it. Um, the only person who so far was really willing to s- try to say too much was um, Councillor Colleen Hardwick uh, on the Vancouver Council who wanted to try to get a discussion going about a referendum and then nobody was nobody wanted to discuss that. What is your so, well, what is your feeling about the mood then on Vancouver Council? You, do you feel that they don't want to talk? Is there support for this or do they just not want to talk about it? I mean, I think in general, people want to support something that's Indigenous-led, but they also uh, are not going to just run in and say, here's a blank check. Um, You know, they're they're trying to balance sort of, yes, we support an Indigenous-led bid, but also say, you know, we're not just going to commit to any amount of money. And I know... One, um, most of the mayors don't want to talk about it. I tried speaking to them and everybody declined. But Malcolm Brody um, in Richmond, where the skating rink is, and that was mentioned as a possible site that would be reused, um, is the oval out there. Uh, he said, you know, if they decided that Richmond should be a big part of the games and put on, you know, sort of um, participation plazas and, you know, they had quite a bit of stuff last time. He said, we wouldn't have a referendum, but we'd certainly do like pretty big public consultation about that. If it's just a question of them leasing the rink for three years, um, because you're going to have to like, you'd have to redo it to make it a competitive venue again a competition venue. Um, he said that's just a simple matter of working out how much money might they pay and, and so on. So, uh, but everyone else is staying really quiet about yeah. it. And so, and the, and the clock is ticking on this because these decisions are going to have to be made soon, aren't they? Yeah, I think they have to decide on submitting the bid by fall or something. The one thing that, that we will see is that 
every council that signed a memo of understanding and is participating, they're going to have to have a council vote at some point. Like you can't just commit the city uh, to being a full partner right. in any of this without at least having a formal public vote um, saying that you officially support it. So uh, 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 Vancouver and um, Whistler are going to have to do that for sure. And then Sun Peaks uh, and Richmond, I'm, uh, are, I'm not quite sure, uh, you know, if they're going to be signed on as full partners or what, but who knows? They might have to have a vote as well. Well, I tell you, it makes that fall election so much more interesting. Francis, thank you for that. <sighs> Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see how the public responds and how much they bring up concerns or whether they're kind of excited about the idea of having it here again or what. Yeah, I think they need to, I think the public, all of us, we need to see what we think this is going to look like. How do they envision yeah. this? And then they'll decide if they're going to get on board. Yeah, and everyone's saying it won't be the $7 billion it was last time because we have the Sea to Sky, we have venues at Whistler, we have this, we have that. But we don't quite know what the bill is, and we don't quite know what the province and federal government might contribute because they haven't been formally approached yet. All right, more to talk about then. Francis, thank you. Yep. That's okay. Yeah, have a good day. That's Francis Bueller, Urban Affairs contributor with the Globe and Mail. Read her latest piece there talking about this, this whole idea of this Indigenous-led 2030 Winter Olympics bid. The train seems to be on the tracks and moving down the tracks, but we still don't have a lot of details about what this is going to look like, how much taxpayer money is involved, what is going on here. There's so many questions still. She tries to get some of the answers to those questions, but they are still out there, still waiting for those. This is Mornings with Simi. Sounds like everybody wanted to travel. Everybody booked a flight, tried to get to the airport because it was after the pandemic. And turns out that is not the case at the airport at all. Big delays, right? Baggage pileup, flight cancellations, flight delays have resulted in Air Canada doing something that well, we haven't really seen outside of the pandemic. And that is making what they call meaningful reductions to their flight schedule for July and August. And they said they cannot handle the ongoing flight delays and congestion that's been happening at airports, and this is the best way to do that. So this was a statement that was emailed to customers, landed in my inbox too yesterday right around dinner time. So it sounds like a couple of hundred flights are going to be taken off the routes or temporarily suspended, depending on what route it is, mainly out of Toronto and Montreal airports there. But what does this mean for travel, for you? To talk more about this, Natalie Preddy joins us now, a travel and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Were you surprised to hear this, that Air Canada was taking these kind of extraordinary steps? You know, I wasn't. I have been traveling a lot recently, and it is a disaster in there. Um, they, in terms of baggage, you know, coming back last weekend from a trip, we waited two hours for baggage. Um, airplanes are being held at the tarmac on the tarmac because customs just doesn't have space. Um, there is really, really are are not performing the way that they should be right now, and it is because a lack of staff. And, um, you know, they are hiring. Uh, Air Canada is hiring. I think there's something like 600 um, new staff in, in months, in, a, in just mere months. So it it really is a struggle for them right now. And they are, and as you said, you know, cancelling, I think, is the only, only way to do it. And I think um, 
from what I read, Justin Trudeau actually asked airlines to start canceling flights that, as it's the only way that they could see getting through this summer without this continued chaos. Right. Were they too ambitious, do you think, with their flight schedules thinking, hey, we're just going to go back to doing what we do, do, did before and it'll all work out? Absolutely, because there are less staff out there, you know, simple as you do not have the numbers. And we are supposed to be, Canadians are supposed to be up to um, almost pre-pandemic levels when it comes to traveling. Everyone is dying to get away somewhere to see family or see friends or even just to have a vacation. And staff just, they left during the pandemic. There was absolutely no work and they are, and no one wants to come back. No one wants to come back to these, you know, these really tough jobs dealing with angry travelers and customer service and odd hours. So they're really struggling to get the, to get the people to, to help us get where we need to be. Is this something that all airlines are facing, do you think? And I know that WestJet actually said that already, but kind of in a quieter way last week in that they're going to maintain a lower schedule until they can get things back up and running. Yeah, I mean, this is not just a Canadian issue. We're seeing this all over the world. I know uh, Heathrow, um, their British Airways is having (laughs) a very, very similar um, issue. I think they were canceling something like a thousand flights in one week. The number of people in Heathrow Airport sleeping on the floor is just ridiculous. So it's not something that that is just Canadian. I was in, in Australia in April and Sydney airport, the domestic airport was a disaster. Uh, So all around the world, I think it's just general hospitality, service industry positions just don't have the numbers that they used to have. Okay, so then any advice for people, Natalie, at this point? I mean, I think a lot of people are probably rethinking uh, their possible future travel. But if we do have to travel, if we've already booked something, any advice for people? Yeah, I would definitely look at your insurance policy, uh, see what is covered when it comes to flight cancellations um, and and trip cancellations. You know, let's say you you were to miss a, a layover or anything like that due to a canceled flight. How can your insurance help you out? Um, I would, uh, if you haven't booked anything yet, I would I would consider maybe looking at something closer to home this year again. I know that's not what we want to hear. No, it's not. But, uh, <laughs> it's not. We all want to get somewhere. But you know what? If you do want to travel, pack your patience, pack your kindness. Everyone is trying to figure out how to make this work. And although all these flights are being canceled, it's actually the best move for us right now, I I, I feel, just to to lower the amount of traffic going through the airport. And, you know, it's really going to affect domestic flights, um, some flights to the, to the States, and the late night and afternoon flights. I would say tr- if you are trying to fly out, book the first flight out in the morning. Give yourself more time to get where you need to go. You know, if you're trying to get to a wedding, don't book your flight to get there day of or day before. Give yourself more time. Um, and And just... Just anticipate waiting. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yes, that there's a lot of that going around. Anticipate waiting. Yeah, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Speak to you soon. That's Natalie Preddy, travel and lifestyle expert, talking about the Air Canada decision to cut back their schedule in order to make your travel experience better. 
too many delays, too much baggage. And, and I mean that in the literal sense of everything piling up there, that they're hoping this will help ease some of that and make it more efficient for you. Do you think this is a good idea or are you just frustrated with the whole travel experience? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Don't need to tell you what tomorrow is. It is, of course, Canada Day. Maybe you're looking forward to a long weekend. Maybe you're looking forward to that usual Canada Day barbecue get-together that you have. But you know what? This is going to be the first Canada Day that'll have any kind of, well, bigger public celebrations after all the ones that we canceled during the pandemic, but also the first one where I think reconciliation has really been much more in the forefront than in years past. So how do we do that? How do we combine those two things on this Canada Day? Well, let's check in with our show contributor, Raji Sohal, who's been thinking about this. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. If I may, for just a minute, I love Canada Day. I love it. We've always loved it in my house. My dad's not a really big consumer, but every few years, you better believe he gets himself a new red t-shirt to don on Canada Day. It's an emotional day for him, I think, as it is for a lot of immigrants, because They believe in what the flag stands for. They believe in democracy, rule of law, inclusivity. For my dad, multiculturalism is a big one. And this year, we're back on to having those great big public uh, parties for Canada Day, lots of events happening. And yeah, like you said last year, it felt uh, tricky because of the pandemic, yes, but it was impossible to celebrate properly because we had just learned about the unmarked graves in Kamloops. So last year, I felt Canada Day was um, a deeply reflective day for a lot of people. And this year, given that and given our time now, a year of thinking about that stuff and of what has happened on land in Canada before, I think we can expect a different Canada Day. And what's good is that I've noticed cities, municipalities have taken note of that. They know that this year has got to be a bit different. If you look at their websites, you'll get a taste for how they're doing it differently this year. Like take, for example, city of Surrey. We're talking about a city council where a mayor said last year that he refused to do land acknowledgements. And yet at the city of Surrey website right now, it says July 1st is a day to reflect on the wrongs of the past in order to chart a new and better path forward together. We can work towards reconciliation and a more equitable society for all. That's like saying a lot, I think, for a city, for city of Surrey to put that on their website right now. And I talked to Wilson Williams. He's an elected counselor with the Squamish Nation. And he says Canada Day should be celebrated. He said Indigenous people have uh, in the last year been invited into the room to do more planning, to uh, make a change, to make a difference, and to work on reconciliation together with non-Indigenous people. And he says that we need to bring that energy going forward to create that better path forward. Here he is. It's a crossroads I think we're at, and we need to look at how we can move forward. I'm a firm believer, and I'm very optimistic, but Canada could be the best country in the world as long as we're down a path of this healing. And that that mutual understanding and respect only makes it our relations stronger because for all the time when we weren't able to speak our language, we weren't able to practice our culture and our traditions, there was that sense of there was no pride. It was basically, okay, you come to school speaking your language and then you can't speak that anymore and you get in trouble when you do. We are at a place where it's being revitalized. We are in a state of emergency to state like as a nation to save our language, you know, and I'm fortunate enough. My wife's a language teacher. 
So I have the fortune to learn language and my kids do as well. But, but that's the thing. We, we, we are no longer hidden in a room because we, we want to practice our culture and traditions, our language. We are now able to come and go to school. My daughter's in high school, my daughter's in elementary. Their language is used and the land acknowledgements of the surrounding nations are utilized. But they get that sense of pride and come home and start speaking or singing a song and drumming because they learned it through some leaders or they learn it in school at our local school here. But that's what I mean. It's a, it's a transformation. You know, our elders, our old people always say, you never forget the history and where you come from, because there's always going to be that angst of what happened. But if we're on this journey to healing, the next generations will be so proud of who they are, where they come from. It's, it's going to change that sense of pride. It's going to change our leadership. It's going to maximize potential of our people as a community. Um, I think it's, I probably won't be here, <laughs> but I will be able to see the light. Yeah, Simi. And Wilson Williams also talked to me about how the path forward, it's about Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, that it's together through understanding and respect for one another that we're going to move forward. Now, it's just a small example, but I look at what my child has learned in kindergarten about Indigenous peoples in the last year, and it's remarkable. She has taught me so much. And I just see such a difference in where Canadians have gone in the last year in terms of healing and thinking about our relations with Indigenous people. And it it does. It makes me absolutely proud to be Canadian. It does sound amazing that that's that's what a great attitude to take towards this because my whole point with this is everybody can do what they want on Canada Day. That's the great thing about this country. Um, And yes, we should embrace that. Yeah, absolutely. So this Friday, uh, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations are driving those events that are happening at Downtown's uh, Canada Place on July 1st. And they're going to mark what is, wow, the 36th annual event at the Port Vancouver site. It's called Canada Day Together. It was really this year planned collaboratively with representatives from the host First Nations, which I just think is fantastic. That is fantastic. And you said this, is this the 36th year they're doing this? Because now I feel old yeah. when you say that. <laughs> because I remember when those Canada Day celebrations down there were a new thing, Rachi. Yeah, yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm looking, I haven't found one yet, but I am on the lookout for a pancake breakfast because that's what I remember loving to do with my family when I was a little kid for Canada Day. So I'm looking for one of those that I can take the kids to. Oh, see, now you got me thinking about pancakes. That would be great. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal. They're talking about celebrating Canada Day. And yes, many people will. There will be different activities going on in communities all over. And yes, help us out. Maybe you can let us know what's happening in your community for Canada Day, and we can put that out there. This is Mornings with Simi. It is said to be the largest settlement of a governmental health claim in Canadian history, and BC led the way on it. Purdue Pharma has agreed to a $150 million settlement to recover health care costs associated with allegedly deceptive marketing practices the company used to sell opioids. Opioids that we now know had a huge impact on rates of addiction and overdoses. So what does this settlement mean for people here in this province? Let's find out. Joining us now to talk about that is David Eby, the Attorney General. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So what does this settlement mean for us? 
Well, this is um, people should know that this is just the first of uh, of more than forty defendants in our class action uh, that British Columbia started. Uh, it's a national class action, and so all of the amounts recovered are shared nationally. And uh, we're currently in a process with the other provinces on how to uh, divide it up in a principled way, determining who's, uh, which provinces have been most affected by the opioid crisis. But this is really just the beginning, and it's a strong signal to the other defendants in the lawsuit about, uh, about their need to be approaching BC to talk about settlement. Okay, and you really pushed for this, like, what was it, four or five years ago this started? Yeah, it was almost four years ago. It's four years ago in August. Uh, we brought in legislation, a new law that uh, that set up our ability to be able to bring this claim. It's very challenging to prove uh, without disclosing, um, you know, millions of medical records of British Columbians and other people across the country uh, to bring the lawsuit. So we had to bring it in a way that protected people's privacy, but also demonstrated the impact of the cost to the province of the uh, alleged conduct of these defendants, and uh, and so uh, we did so successfully, and uh, and we ended up here today. And the, the good news for us is uh, is that we actually were able to recover from Purdue. Um, there are other Canadian lawsuits that are grouped in uh, in the United States right now as unsecured creditors because Purdue U.S. has gone bankrupt, and the whole pool of claimants in that group is limited to fifteen million dollars. Um, so it's uh, it's good news for us that we were able to hold. Uh, uh, this multinational corporation accountable, uh, and uh, and there's more to come. I hope. Okay, so what do we do with the money? So the money will go into uh, uh, supporting people uh, uh, struggling with the opioid crisis. You know, I, when you when you talk about 150 million dollars, in the United States, the claims were in the trillions, uh, in Canada, in the billions, in terms of the impact of the opioid uh, crisis on Canadians and on Americans. Uh, and so $150 million is a relatively small amount compared to that kind of damage. Uh, we're currently spending almost a billion dollars on opioid-related uh, responses, both in healthcare and treatment and, and overdose prevention. Uh, so the money will go into that, but, uh, but really this is about holding these companies accountable for their deceptive marketing practices. Was it uh, hard to get other provinces and the Government of Canada on board with this when you started talking about it five years ago? No, no. It. Uh, I was really thrilled um, by the response of uh, of the other provinces and Canada. Um, the the challenge has been uh, elections uh, coming and going. Uh, the settlement uh, discussions were taking place during an election in Ontario, for example, and uh, and so making sure that uh, that the governments were able to sign off uh, on the agreements and, and get all that coordinated. There was a huge amount of work done by our team. Uh, to coordinate the various provinces, and uh, obviously it's a big country and a, and a lot of different people and governments involved. So uh, I'm glad we got to this point, and, and uh, we proved that we can do this. And the other piece, Simi, is we uh, obviously have our ongoing tobacco litigation. That's been going on for 20 years, uh, and uh, and there are some recent developments in that around a court-appointed mediator. So uh, it, it helps us work together more closely on these uh, older cases as well. Okay, so what does that tell us then about the next steps? You talked about we're not done here with this, but what kind of signal does that send to these companies about the way they market these drugs? Well, one uh, thing that the defendants uh, remaining in the lawsuit should note is that uh, part of this agreement is cooperation uh, from Purdue, uh, the company, with uh, the provinces in this class action. So they'll be um, providing us with the information uh, that we need to continue to pursue these claims against the other defendants. And the defendant group includes uh, consultants uh, that advised uh, Purdue and others, uh, companies like McKinsey uh, that recently settled in the United States for hundreds of millions of dollars for their alleged role in 
in helping and consulting on designing these marketing practices. So uh, there are other uh, there are other groups that um, that should take note uh, that cooperation with Purdue is uh, is part of this settlement agreement. How do we push back on that? Because you know, having watched all these documentaries and read all these books about this, it's clear that the campaigns of them marketing to healthcare professionals had such a huge influence. How do we turn that tide? Yeah, so in, um, it's, it's obviously a larger challenge, not just in relation to the opioid drug class, but also drugs generally and pharmaceuticals. Uh, so um, we have uh, the Therapeutics Initiative in British Columbia, which is a program we funded at the University of British Columbia that provides independent advice to doctors on the efficacy of new medications and, uh, and side effects and, uh, and how to prescribe them properly and when to prescribe them so that doctors have information to rely on that's independent of the drug companies. Because that's one of the big challenges is, uh, as a physician, if you're trying to decide what and when to prescribe, uh, if you don't have any information other than that provided by the drug company, uh, obviously, um, you know, it, it makes it difficult to trust it and to know how accurate it might be. And uh, to have that independent source is important. That's why we've increased the funding to that group to be able to do that. Right. You mentioned the tobacco litigation, though, 20 years and counting. This one took a lot less time than that. Was that surprising? Um, yeah, it, it was a pleasant surprise that we were able to get here, and uh, and I say that because uh, in you know uh, it, it was just a, it was it was a whole bunch of factors coming together to make it happen. It was the uh, the criminal charges uh, related to Purdue in the United States. It was the uh, bankruptcy settlement there. The um, willingness of uh, Purdue to negotiate in Canada rather than sell off their Canadian assets to pay for Canadian claims. There were a bunch of things that had to happen for this day to arrive and and to arrive in legal terms quite quickly. Uh, given the tobacco length of the tobacco litigation, but the other piece is that we learned a lot from the tobacco litigation, and uh, and we implemented those lessons. And we also uh, didn't face the same challenges when uh, the company said, "No, your your new law is illegitimate." We had precedents to rely on from the tobacco litigation, so that sped things up considerably. I'm so curious about this too. In terms of, does this change anything, as in how we allow drugs to be marketed in our province? Like, does, do we have new rules? Are we more skeptical? Should we be? Uh, it it has. Uh, you know, uh, the, I talked about the, the therapeutics initiative and the and the work that they're doing at uh, at UBC to provide doctors with independent information for opioids generally. Um, physicians are um, are much more uh, cautious and recognizing the potential for uh, significant addiction, even though uh, in uh, these marketing materials, uh, they communicated to physicians that the risk of addiction, I mean, just shockingly in hindsight, but at the time uh, that the risk of addiction was low. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it's changed um, how physicians approach opioids. Uh, it's changed how uh, the province uh, uh, supports independent information for physicians. Uh, and I think, you know, for many British Columbia families, it's changed their lives forever. Uh, and yeah. it's resulted in things like uh, the decriminalization initiative to, to make sure that people can access a safe drug supply, for example, if they're addicted and to minimize the risk of overdose. So it's changed a lot. Yeah, it is shocking to me that it was ever pushed as not addictive at all. But those were the times, I guess. Uh, before we let you go, you know, I'm going to have to ask you this, too. You said you're going to take some time to think about this. But what is your thought process on running for the NDP leadership? Well, um, you know, we just uh, we just lost our coach uh, a couple of days ago, and it was big news for all of us in our caucus. And um, you know, the nice thing about how John uh, ran our team uh, is that uh, it was bigger than any one person, and so we're all, and myself included, very focused on getting the work done. You know, this uh, announcement yesterday is an example of that, and, and I've got lots more work to do. 
but I'm, you know, my family and I are talking. Obviously, a decision like this has a big impact on family and uh, talking with friends and members in the party and colleagues and uh, and making uh, doing the work to be able to make a decision on this. It's a huge decision for me and for everyone that I love. And so I just want to do it right and uh, and make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Okay, so do you have a timeline for that? Uh, well, we're still waiting to hear from the party about what uh, their timeline is, when the leadership contest would be and what the rules would be and all those kinds of things. And, uh, and my timeline on making a decision will be very informed by that. Were you surprised to hear the Premier's words on this? I was. Um, you know, I like like all of our um, colleagues and, and the people who work closely with John and, and do love him and know him. And uh, we saw the impact of the cancer treatments on him and uh, and his ability, uh, especially at the end of the day, to, to keep going. And he was quite frank. Yeah, I mean, he's John. He's just very honest about uh, and he was honest in the media about it, about feeling tired. And, and you know, just as a friend, um, completely support he and Ellie in making the right decision for their family. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, it was a surprise. You know, I, I think a lot of us thought that we would be uh, through the next election with John. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're just uh, coming to terms with that. Well, thanks for your honesty on that. We appreciate it. Good luck. Thanks very much. We'll talk soon. Yes, we will. That's David Eby, Attorney General, talking about, well, leadership and what happens next, but also about this big settlement. It's a big one for BC, a big one for Canada, and unique, as he described it there, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, one year after the devastating wildfire that completely destroyed the village of Lytton, it is said that the village could thrive soon. That according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. But boy, it seems like a real uphill battle to make all of that happen. How do we do that? Well, joining us now is Rob DePruis, who's the Insurance Bureau of Canada's National Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, also Lead Coordination of Lytton's Recovery Insurance. Rob, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How big of a job is this, just this idea of rebuilding Lytton? Well, one thing we have to keep in mind is we're not just rebuilding one home. We're rebuilding an entire village. One year ago today... The community of Lytton, B.C. experienced a tragic and devastating event that totally destroyed or significantly damaged the vast majority of all the buildings within that area. And there's a lot of work that's been going on behind the scenes, coordinating with local and provincial officials and getting everything set up so that we can start that rebuilding process so that this community can be thriving once again. Has something like this on this scale been, ever been tackled before in Canada? Well, there have been really big fires that have happened across the country over the last number of decades. But this situation is very unique. We have a very small community that has been continuously habitated by people for more than 10,000 years. So there's a very significant archaeological component. And we do know as we start to go through this process that there have been artifacts found. So we need to make sure that we're sifting through all of the soil to capture all of this cultural history. How do we, where do you even start with something like that? And how much is this, how much is all this going to cost like the insurance estimate of this? Well, the insurance estimate is more than $100 million in damages, and that's for the homes and businesses that were in this community. But we do know that the damages are much more. 
Some people did not have insurance. And there's some components like the archaeological component that are outside the scope of an insurance policy. And this is where the BC government has really stepped up and been working very closely with the municipal and local officials to get funding in place to make sure that we can do a coordinated effort to make sure that we're capturing all of the history in this area, and also, most importantly, to make sure that we're doing it safe so that people can be moving back and they'll be safe when they live there for years to come. And what is the timeline like for getting some of this work even started at this point, Rob? Well, there hasn't been a lot of hope for people over the past year because they haven't seen a lot of things happening on the ground. But there has been a lot of work and really a monumental effort behind the scenes in getting everything coordinated with all the right people, getting the people in place to do everything properly, respectfully, and efficiently. And with that, we are really starting to see some movement now with debris removal, which is the first step in order to rebuild these homes and businesses that were damaged. Okay, and so is that getting underway soon? It's absolutely underway right now. We know that work has been started over the last couple of months. We're starting to see a lot more movement happening now because all of these pieces are finally starting to fit together. And we have to remember that we're writing the playbook on this. This type of an event with these circumstances that are so unique really hasn't happened anywhere else in Canada. And it is really a very unique reconstruction process of this community. I have so many operational questions about this, Rob. For instance, how do you, how does each individual homeowner who had insurance get to make the decisions about what they want in order to rebuild? I mean, you must also have to rebuild, say, City Hall. And so you have so many different clients here. There are. We have homes and we have various businesses as well as the municipal properties and infrastructure. There's a lot of moving parts when we start dealing with everything that was impacted. But with all the help and collaboration of all of the stakeholders, the local Lytton officials and the BC government with their support, we're now carving the path and we have the playbook so that we can really start to move forward here, which is very great news. So I say to all the residents and business owners that you want to remain optimistic. There is hope. We are starting to get moving on here and we will be able to start that rebuild process very, very soon. And so what kind of requirements or mitigation in construction will there be to try to prevent something like this from happening in the future? Is that something that's going to be mandated by insurance? Well, it's not mandated by insurance. The local council has introduced some rebuilding bylaws. So when you are rebuilding a home, you want to make sure that this home is fire resistant. So you have fire resistive roof covers and siding, as well as things like fences and decks are fire resistive as well. So the insurance industry supports rebuilding more resilient so that we can try to avoid anything like this from ever happening again in the future. Are there ways in which to take this and and make an example perhaps of Lytton in the type of materials that are used or in the type of rebuilding that happens? Well, you're exactly right. And that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to rebuild this community better than it was before and absolutely more resilient. The Lytton area is not a stranger to fire. There were many fires over the last century that impacted many of the buildings around here. And we're at a point in this particular community's history where we can make this 
particular village more resilient. And we're really working together to try to find a way to use materials that will help this community thrive and also be more resilient to fires in the future. Okay, so this is a real trial. Is this being watched, Rob? Is this not just a Canadian thing, but lots of communities perhaps all over the world that live in kind of fire areas, fire risky areas, are watching to see what happens here? I really think that they are, only because fire is not unique to BC or to Canada. We see fires all around the world. There are materials to help reduce or minimize the impact. And there's even some things that homeowners can do with the types of vegetation that they're planting and making sure that they don't have combustible materials around their homes. So there is a lot of attention on this, and we want to make sure that we get it right, not only for today, but for years into the future as well. And what would you say to Lytton residents then who are quite impatient to get their lives back? That it does take time to do things right that we don't want you to go back to a community that's not safe or could potentially have these types of damages that occur in the future. Remain optimistic. There is hope. Everyone is working very, very hard and tirelessly to get the process going, to get the debris cleared and to start that rebuild so that people can be moving back to the community that they love. That is good to hear. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Rob DePruis, the Insurance Bureau of Canada's National Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, also the lead in coordination of Lytton's recovery insurance. And yes, there's a lot of recovery that has to happen. It has been one year. So it's one year ago today, actually, that that wildfire spread so rapidly through Lytton, just burning everything in the path. Two people were killed too. And the temperatures, I think we forget. I mean, it's nice and cool today, but... A year ago, what the entire province it felt like was going through at that time, the temperatures in Lytton on that day, something like 49 degrees. No wonder it went up in flames like that. So yes, the rebuild is happening probably slower than what all residents there, that community would like. I know the mayor has expressed some concerns that people have established lives elsewhere and might not come back to Lytton, but there's a lot of focus, a lot of recovery, a lot of effort uh, that is being undertaken to rebuild Lytton. But as Rob pointed out, it's going to take some patience here as they work towards getting everybody back and starting to clear the debris, treating the site with respect and making sure that people can get their homes and businesses and everything back on track. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.